And I failed to thank um, Ben Schmidt and Charles Greer and uh, Mark Anderson and Roy Mummy, who are rotating off as deacons. And so we're grateful for um, y'all's service as well to us. I know you don't you don't take that role as a role to be up front, but we really appreciate what you guys have done for us as well. Um, I also want to mention or just remind us again that after the service, there'll be an elder up front. Uh, a lot of times people come and they're, they really need prayer. Maybe you might just have come saying, I really just need somebody to pray for me more than anything else today, and we want to provide that. Or it could be in the course of the sermon, you really have some sense that God's speaking to you and you want to just try to have a moment with somebody who can help confirm that moment. So we want to provide that. And so every Sunday, I'm usually in the back doing the meeting and greeting, but there's an elder here. He's got a tag on and it'd be easy to mark uh, for you to see him. And we want to encourage that both with uh, the congregation and also visitors. It's it's sad, and I know it because I feel it myself. Um, I'm trying to remember where this was. I was at a meeting. Uh, it was a church meeting on my sabbatical, and they had some kind of prayer. I think it was the end of the service, and I I remember thinking, Paul, you should get up and get somebody to pray for you. But, you know, I didn't. I don't know why. I don't know what that is that... There's some kind of, I don't know, vulnerability or something in there that um, can limit you. And I'm, we're trying to encourage that not to be a limitation. If there's some, something that you need, we want to be there for you. Well, First Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you have 24 karat gold, 24 karat gold, as you know, is known as 100% gold or pure gold. It's a gold, it's a gold that has no impurities, but... Often, 24-karat gold is too soft to use in jewelry, and so jewelers will, will add back in certain metals so that most of your everyday jewelry is a 14-karat gold or 18-karat gold or something else. It still looks like gold, but it has some properties about it that harden it in a way that help you use that ring or earrings or necklace every day. Um, but if you want 24 karat gold, uh, gold without any impurities, then it has to be refined. And you know the refining process requires a furnace. If you want gold to be refined, if you want all the impure metals to uh, bubble up to the top and be skimmed off, which is known as dross, uh, then it requires a furnace, and the furnace has to be heated to nearly 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So you have to stick in this, this gold ore, so to speak, this gold that has the impurities, and you have to stick it into this furnace, and the person adjusting the temperature has to get the furnace up to 2,000 degrees before all the waste metals are available to be uh, skimmed off. And this morning, Peter informs us that our faith is more precious than pure gold. And Peter is also going to tell us that if you want a 24-carat faith, it's going to require a furnace. If you're interested in a, in a pure faith, if you want something that really is dedicated to Christ and Christ alone, then it requires that your faith be tested and that's going to feel at times like a furnace. 
And many of you can say, yeah, and that furnace sometimes seems to get pretty hot. But it's God's way of turning up the heat in a way to not cripple us, to, but to strengthen our, our understanding of who we are and who we are, who he is. And so we become, uh, this pure faith becomes a little bit softer and a little bit able to be, uh, more able to be molded into the image of Christ, which is God's goal. Now, biblically speaking, this metaphor of this furnace in gold isn't breaking news in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's a, a picture you see all over the Bible. For instance, in Zechariah chapter 13, I will bring my people into the fire. It's just, it's just helpful not to read too quickly. God is saying to his congregation, I will bring my people into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord, he is our God. Proverbs 17, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And Job chapter 23, Job, and some scholars believe is the oldest written book in the Bible, says this, but God knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. So, so like the biblical scholars before him, Peter, Peter is informing his congregation and he's informing us this morning that, that if you're going to be called into this 24 karat faith that Christ has called you into, if you're willing to follow Christ, you are going to follow him into a furnace. And he's trying to help his his congregation that's struggling to say, guys, there's we shouldn't be surprised by this. There shouldn't take anybody off guard. You, it shouldn't cause you to to waver in your faith that you're going through these kinds of tests. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in part of the quote on your bulletin, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. Meaning there you, you come and there's going to be things that are going to need to be burned away in the process of, of following God. And so following after God is like being called into a furnace, not like being called into a Snuggie. Do you, you know what a Snuggie, you know this, you see this, it's probably going to be a commercial in like a month or so when you get towards Christmas. And it's really just, uh, it's... The commercials are terrible, I think, because it's just you're so it's like I'm so lazy I can't get a blanket, so I've got a snuggie. I mean, there's something weird about the whole thing, and maybe you have a snuggie, but basically it's a blanket. It's a blanket and you stick your arms through it, as far as I can tell, and so you just never have to leave the couch. Um, but you know, a lot of people when they they follow Christ, as funny as that little comparison is, what they think is they're buying into a Snuggie. I'm going to get Christ, and what that's going to feel like is a nice, warm, comfortable blanket, and it's really not going to cost me that much. It's going to give me a lot of things that are helpful, but it's not going to ask a lot of things from me. And so Peter's trying to say, in a first century term, that's, that's not what that's, that's like. If you're really willing to follow after Christ, you're going to follow him into a furnace. You're, you're not going to follow him into a Snuggie. And so he's trying to help his congregation really wrestle with this idea. And 
And I think it's helpful for us because I think you can begin to follow Christ and you can begin to follow him faithfully. And in your mind, you could say things like this. If if I remain faithful, if I'm really zealous, if I'm really jealous for the things of God and not the things of the world, if I'm filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, then I'm not going to experience any crushing darkness. Oh, I'll have some rough patches, but I, I'm not going to really have a, a crushing darkness because I'm following faithfully. I'm following zealously for the Lord. I'm filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm walking in that power, and so it's just going to be one snuggie after another. And we have that mentality, even if we don't say it out loud so often. And what happens is, in every life that I've known, the furnace gets turned way, way up. Not a passing cloud, but a dark cloud settles in. And your friends become doubt and discouragement and the nearness of the Lord seems like a long way away. And when that begins to happen, when the bottom falls out of your life, you learn things like what you really love. And, you know, when you're in the furnace, what you learn about yourself isn't always very pretty. But you just can't learn them any other way. And so right here at the beginning of this letter, Peter is saying clearly your, your faith Christians are going to be tested by this fire, this furnace. It's like gold. It's going to be 2,000 degrees at some point. And he tells you in verse 7, here's the goal of it. The goal of it is the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're trying to refine you, Paul, so all of, all of the things that are centered around Paul are getting burned out. And what's left is this faith that Paul is just always pointing towards Christ. Everything is going towards the glory and the honor and the praise of Christ. And so this morning, as we look at this particular text, I want to do something a little bit different. Instead of drilling down on these particular words and these verses, I want to look at a life that was tested, a faith that was refined by fire, and a faith that had to endure great discouragement, a faith that had to endure great doubt, a faith of a man who was very faithful, very zealous, very full of the Holy Spirit, very used by God, and yet even this man faced these discouraging dark times, but he, he remained faithful to the end, and he got to see Jesus face to face. So we were going to take these verses and just see how they play out in the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So that's where we are this morning, and we're going to stay there. So let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19. We're going to be in those two chapters for the remainder of the sermon today. Elisha is an Old Testament prophet. He lived around 850 B.C. And, and if you just remember... Um, 
Moses leads his people out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into the promised land. After Joshua, after Joshua dies, uh, Israel is basically ruled by Judges, which is also a book of the Bible. And then after Judges, you have these prophets that are coming in, and the prophets lead to kings. And you'll remember the three main kings are Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the, the kingdom split into two, one the northern kingdom is called Israel. And there, as you read through the books of the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, there's always a king and then there's a prophet. So you have the, the king and the prophet sort of working together, hopefully in the best sense, towards doing what God wants them to do. Now, if you're familiar with this particular story, it's, it is somewhat familiar to most of us. You know that nobody wants to live in chapter 19. Nobody wants to live in 1 Kings 19. Everybody is raising their hands to live in 1 Kings 18. And that's because in first 18, in chapter 18, fire from heaven fell for Elijah. In chapter 18, fire fell from heaven for Elijah. But in chapter 19, fire fell from heaven on Elijah. So everybody wants to be around when it falls for you. But what we're trying to look at this morning is how do you act and how can you live when the fire falls on you? When the refining fire comes down and says there's still some impurities, Paul, that need to be burned out. You're not going to get to see the fire coming down for you right now. You're going to see the fire coming down on you. How can you live at that particular point? And Elijah helps us. He's the prophet, like I said, around 850 B.C., and the king that he works together with, and in this case, case works against, is King Ahab. King Ahab is one of the most wicked kings that Israel had, and Ahab had a very famous wife named Jezebel. And so both, basically when you're reading through these chapters, it's, it's Elijah against Ahab and Jezebel. And when you come to chapter 18, it's one of the most powerful scenes in the Old Testament. It's this, you remember this epic battle where Elijah is on Mount Carmel, and it's Elijah, this one man, against 450 prophets of Baal. And so all this tension between Elijah and Ahab is coming together on Mount Carmel, and, and they call this meeting, and it's just going to be Elijah, and it's going to be the prophets of Baal, 450. And listen to what he says in chapter 18, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, these are the people of Israel, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Verse 23. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put fire, put no, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put, put no fire to it. And then you, you, the prophets of Baal, you call down the name of your God and I'll call down the name of my God and the Lord the God who answers by fire, he is God. You see the situation? We've got the same, we've got the same sacrifice. We've got 450 guys calling on their God. We've got one guy calling on his God. And whichever one answers, we're just going to say, that's the real God. And so if you read a little bit further, the prophets of Baal are calling first on their God to come down. And Elijah must have a great sense of sarcasm. 
because they're dancing around and they're cutting themselves and they're doing all their things to get fire to come down and consume this uh, sacrifice. And he says, maybe your God has gone to the bathroom. I mean, maybe he fell asleep. So if you yell louder, you can sort of wake him up. And so he's just needling these 450 prophets. I mean, imagine this, one against 450. And nothing happens, and finally you get to chapter 18, verse 37. Elijah now comes, and he prays, and he says this, Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, that you are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up all the water that was in the trench and when all the people saw it they fell on their faces and said the Lord he is God the Lord this this is all capitals Yahweh he is God and Elisha said to them seize the prophets of Baal let no, no none of them escape and they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and he slaughtered the prophets there I mean, it's a powerful moment. It's when fire fell for Elijah. Here, here's a man who's sold out for God. He's, he's jealous for God. But then we turn to chapter 19 and we begin to read about the time that the fire fell on Elijah. Let's look at that together. Ahab told Jezebel. So Ahab the king, he goes back and he tells his wife all that Elijah had done. And how Elijah had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, Jezebel's calling out and saying, You know, you put all my prophets to, to, to death by the sword, the same thing's going to happen to you. Then Elijah, verse 3, was afraid. He rose and he ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat, he came, he sat down by a tree and he asked the Lord, he said, he asked that he may die, saying, it is enough now. Take away my life, Lord. I'm no better than my father's. And Elijah lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he took and behold, and there was a head of cake and baked on a hot, hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down. And the angel of the Lord came to a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and he went into the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to another mountain. We're not on Mount Carmel now. We're on Mount Horeb called the mountain of God. Verse 9, then Elijah came to a cave. And he lodged in the cave. It just sounds like a furnace. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And he, and he said to him, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even only I am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks 
before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out. He stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said, well, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I only am left. And they seek my life. To take it away. Isn't that a surprising reaction? I mean, uh, Ahab comes back. He tells his wife Jezebel all that happened. Elijah stood there. He called on the Lord and fire came down from heaven. It's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And then he chased down 450 men. He put them all to death. And Jezebel says, hey, let's get a messenger. You go tell Elijah he's next. And what do you what do you anticipate from Elijah if you don't know the story? The messenger comes up and says, hey, Jezebel's got this little, you know, comeback for you. Tomorrow you're going to be dead. What do you anticipate Elijah saying at this point? This is what I anticipate. Let's get ready to rumble. I mean, that's what I'm I'm really I'm waiting for the boom box to come out and y'all ready for this, you know, and just music to come out. And look, hey, you just tell Jezebel a few days back, we've got the fire coming. I'm pretty sure we can get the fire back down. That's it. That's aren't you expecting that? I mean, all, all of your energy is leaning towards this direction. And when you get to verse three, it's like it's it's arresting. When Elijah heard this, he was afraid and he ran for his life and then he asked that he could die. Why is he afraid? I don't think it's primarily for his life. He thought he might really die. He stood there in this mountain with 450 other prophets. I think it's primarily... Uh, uh, discouragement, dismay. You see, I stood there and I saw all this happening. And what I thought was going to happen is God is moving in this spectacular way. And what would ultimately happen after this spectacular power of God is the people would really turn their hearts back towards God. And I knew that was going to happen. And, and, and it didn't last. The miracle didn't have a lasting effect. And people went back to their old ways. And Elijah became discouraged and he became a fearful man. And so when he got news from Jezebel, he runs for his life. I think Elijah was discouraged because the dreams he had had dreams of were not going to happen. They were not going to be fulfilled. And you you hear the emotion of verse four. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. Elijah tells you what his shattered dream was in verse 10 and verse 14. It tells you, hey, this is what I wanted. I, I was very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I, 
the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword, and I'm the only one left. And now they're seeking to take my life. I was hoping all that was going to be turned around in this spectacular event. And I think Elijah's prayer was a reasonable prayer. Elijah's prayer was a rational prayer. Elijah's desire was a God-honoring desire. I think his plans had been prayed over. And Elijah had hoped that in some spectacular way, when the fire came down from heaven, it would bring this sweeping revival into his own nation. And people would turn away from the idols and they would turn back to serve a living God. And there would be a, a godly nation once again. But what Elijah learns, and he learns painfully, is that his dream isn't going to be realized. His prayed over, rational, reasonable God-honoring dream is not going to come true. And when he realizes it, he becomes fearful and he runs for his life. And I wonder at just this point in the story, how many of you all are or have been at that point? I mean, if you're doing something evil and you get caught... You may be sad or disappointed. You may be discouraged about yourself or something, but you kind of you can see it in your mind. But when you're when you're God's man or God's woman, you have a God honoring goal. You are faithful. You are zealous for the Lord in ways that most people aren't. You've prayed over this plan. You you sense this is what would be pleasing to God. And that hasn't happened. And instead of dark cloud has rolled in. And what you realize is that plan, it's never going to happen in the way I hoped it would happen. What do you do right at that moment? That's, that's the moment we find Elijah in. You, you run your business in an honorable way. You're, you're a godly person. You, you view your business as a ministry. You're generous. But the people who cheat make all the money. And you sort of scrape by. You're not perfect as a parent, but you brought your kids up in the church. You were on the missions team. You personally witnessed the people and brought people to the Lord. But your own child denies the faith. And you thought, oh, it's just for a little while, but it's been years. And you're pleading. God, would you turn? Would you turn that child around? And it just feels like. A dark cloud has settled in. It's not going to come out the way you thought. See, that's going to happen. What you thought your marriage would be, your career, your health, your future, you, you can fill in the blank. A dark cloud has rolled over. A furnace has gotten turned up. And it's not going to turn out what you thought it was going to turn out. And this account of Elijah tells us that there's a a despair, there's a discouragement that come, can come over even the most faithful minister. It's not limited to people who are sort of on the edge. Even Elijah feels this, God's mouthpiece. And so in chapter 19, the fire falls on Elijah, and he's afraid, and he runs, and he runs for 40 days, and he runs for 40 nights, and he ends up on a mount, another mountain. He's gone from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb, which is in the area of Mount Sinai. So this is the same place Moses met the Lord. And it's just interesting. He goes to a cave. 
I just imagine this man getting inserted into this cave like a furnace. And God just starts turning up the heat on Elijah. Elijah, we're in the furnace. I'm going to burn off some impurities here that you don't even see in yourself. And then God comes to him and asks Elijah twice, verse 9, verse 13, what are you doing here? Elijah. You understand that's not that's a rebuke, right? I mean, God's not looking for information. Gosh, what are you doing here, Elijah? You just shocked me by showing up in this cave. I wasn't prepared for you at all. No, he, he's rebuking Elijah. What are you, what are you doing here, Elijah? Of all the people who are who could be afraid. Have you forgotten the God that you serve? I mean, do you even remember what your own name means, Elisha? My God is Yah. My God is Yahweh. That's my own name. And Elijah had become so fearful, so discouraged, he totally forgot his own name. That he served the living God. He served the God that's in control of all things. He served the God who opened up a way for the people of Israel to get out of prison and, and into the promised land. He served as a God who, who led his people, who provided for his people. He's the God who created all things. He's the God who holds time in his hands. He completely forgot who he served. And you see, Elijah was frustrated by his people that they forgot about God. And guess who had forgotten about God? Elijah. And so God comes in and says, have you forgotten your own name? Do you, have you forgotten who you serve? And he, he turns up the heat on Elijah. But Elijah had been afraid and in, in fear Fear makes you forget, doesn't it? Fear makes you forget what's true. Fear makes you stuck. I'm frozen. I'm so fearful I can't move. Or fear makes you flounder. I'm looking for any solution, anything that can happen. But what it does, it just it, 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 it freezes you in a way that you forget. You forget who you are. You forget who you serve. And thankfully and mercifully, God comes to Elijah to remind him who he is. Elijah, he says twice, remember whose you are. Remember who you are, Elijah. You're a child of the living God. And the second thing we see God doing here is he's informing Elijah that he has, God has a different plan than Elijah's. It may be good for you to hear. You have a God-honoring, prayed-over reasonable, rational plan, and it may be different than the one God has. That happens. And he comes and he tells Elijah, you know, I have a different plan. The dream that you dreamed, that wasn't my dream. You, you were hoping for something spectacular, and that you know it from the text. All those spectacular ways God could operate. In other words, if you could send a Category 5 to Israel, 
in the wind. If you could just throw things up in the air, then God, you could you could really be God honor. It could be a God honoring nation. We're looking for something spectacular. And hey, if it's not in the wind, how about a big earthquake and shake everybody up and everybody will say, well, God's really angry at us and we better turn around. Or or if it's not in a, the wind and if it's not in the earthquake, then send a big fire. And even though it'll be destructive, people say, hey, we need to turn around. Maybe you could, God, I know you're going to do something spectacular, right? That's how you operate, right, God? What's God's answer? It's a low whisper. Meaning, yeah, I'm going to do something spectacular. It's just my definition of spectacular and your definition are two totally different, different definitions. And it would be interesting to read the following verses there and and look at God's answer for 15 through 18. And God's answer doesn't even include Elijah. This is basically the end for Elijah. Yeah, Elijah, have a different plan, and it's not going to include you. You need to go back and find Elisha. He's going to carry that forward. But we don't have time, but I want us to fast forward and ask this question in order to sort of close the loop on Elijah. Where do, where do we see Elijah again in the Bible? Where, where does God close the loop for Elijah? You see, Elijah comes out of the furnace and it's really the end of his ministry. He goes back. He basically ordains Elisha to be the next prophet. He makes somebody king and he basically sort of fades off the scene. Well, he doesn't fade off. He goes on a fiery chariot, so that's not a fade. But but he's not on the scene anymore. But God closes the loop for Elijah. You remember? Luke chapter 9. It's 900 years later that the loop gets closed. That may be the most important thing you hear this morning. God's timetable is 900 years. You see, my timetable is if I get into a problem, it needs to be fixed in the next 24 hours. And God, if you really want me to work on patience, I can wait 48. But but all the things I see, they need sort of immediate reactions. They need immediate responses. And, and God is working immediately in his own timetable. But for Elijah, it's 900 years. See, he's not going to personally see it in his lifetime, but there's going to be this momentum that carries forward into Luke chapter 9. And I'll just read it for you. God calls out into heaven, calls Elijah, and says, Elijah, I've got one more assignment, one more mountain you need to go to. It's not Mount Carmel. It's not Mount Horeb. It's another mountain. And Jesus, verse chapter 9, Jesus took Peter and John and James with him, went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flashing light, flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, listen to this, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus face to face. And the three of them, this is where you, I want to say, Luke, tell us what happened here. 
they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. There's Elijah standing face to face with Jesus, filled with glorious splendor. And now Elijah understands. God, you're going to do something spectacular. See, see, my vision was just Israel. I just wanted these people to turn around. But your vision was the whole world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And what you were going to do that was so spectacular wasn't an earthquake and it wasn't a wind. And it wasn't a fire. It was a it was a cross. This is the most spectacular event in human history. And I just I just wonder, don't you? The glory goes up off the mountain and Jesus is left alone and Moses and Elisha go back up into heaven. And you just wonder, what was that conversation like with God and Elijah? I'm just wondering if Elijah said, I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't have any idea how big your plan was. I was so drilled down on this thing that even though it was a God honoring thing, it just, if, if I got in my way, it wouldn't have been a good thing. I'm sorry that I that I ever doubted. And now that I've I've stood with you face to face, I. What I realize is that I wanted to die, and what I found out is that you wanted to die for me instead. It's incredible. It's totally different than what Elijah would have imagined. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. For a little while, and you can put your name in here, you, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't see him. You don't see him now, but you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that with, with, which is inexpressible that you will obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I don't know what your current circumstances are. For some of them, they're very, very painful, I'm sure. When you've had a dream, a God-honoring, prayed-over, reasonable, rational dream that's not going to come true, it's tough. But one day, very soon... You'll see Jesus Christ face to face. And all the things that you thought were the best plan, you'll say, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you were up to something so much bigger than my little mind could understand. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Lord, I recognize in a message like this,
because I feel it. Oh, easy for Elijah. He knows now. But I'm in the middle of this right now. I'm in the middle of the furnace right now. I don't want to wait 900 years. I understand that. But more importantly, you understand it. And you live with Elijah. His faithfulness and his faults. And you were faithful despite his lack of faith. You were still God even when he became fearful and doubted that you existed. And you brought him home and you're bringing about a plan. So, Lord, I pray for those here particularly who need the encouragement of the life of Elijah this morning. That they would go out not not thinking their circumstances are spectacularly going to change. But they can remain faithful to a God who is going to bring about all good things. Take heart. Take heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.